And as it is uh, the first Sunday of the month, it is our communion Sunday, but at the same time, it is Palm Sunday. Uh, Gary read for us in our morning scripture reading uh, a passage that speaks of Jesus' triumphal entry. And so just, just a word about Palm Sunday. It's a day that commemorates Jesus' triumphal entry to, into Jerusalem for his final week of earthly ministry. Uh, it is Palm Sunday because palm leaves are laid out in the streets leading up to Jerusalem when Jesus arrived, and Jesus sat upon the foal of a donkey. All of this in fulfillment of Zechariah 9, that their king would come humble yet exalted, right? Sitting on the foal of a donkey. Now, Jesus chose to do that. The palm leaves are the sign of Israel, a symbol of Israel. And in the words of Psalm 118, the people are crying out, Hosanna, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are recognizing his Messiahship. They're expecting something tremendous to happen. They're looking to Jesus and his identity and his purpose to fulfill something that they had been anticipating. But what is so unique about our Savior and the way that he handles himself in that final week of earthly ministry that would culminate in his death on Friday, Good Friday, his resurrection on Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, that's next week. Um, what is so interesting about him is how he flips everyone's expectations of what he's supposed to be and what he has actually come to do. The, this morning and next um, we're just going to be looking at one chapter in the Gospel of John, John chapter 3. You guys could turn there if you're not there already. Today we'll be looking at the first 15 verses, and next week we'll be looking at verses 16, right? John three sixteen. Almost everyone has memorized that, um, 16 through 21 next week. Because there, Jesus again flips expectations, and he speaks of something that is surprising, surprising to a teacher of the law. Um, someone that is religious, that's already spiritual, that would be considered quite mature in his understanding of theology and faith. To this individual, and we have no reason to doubt that Nicodemus is a man that is not just committed to the knowledge of Scripture and to its study, but also is devout, is sincere, a genuinely religious man. To that individual who's come to identify Jesus, Jesus flips the script. And he puts upon him, right, an exhortation for something else. And as we consider Palm Sunday leading up to Resurrection Sunday, it's the question that all human beings will ultimately face with. Are you born again? Are you born again? Well, let me read you this passage, and then let me try to unpack a little bit of this dialogue that is happening between Jesus and Nicodemus this morning. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 3 in the Gospel of John. Now there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. 
The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we want to thank you as we enter into this, um, this celebratory week, a week where we um, exalt in the work of Jesus Christ and its culmination of his death on the cross and his resurrection, um, his victory over death and sin. And so, Lord, as... Uh, um, as we think about this Sunday, even as we prepare ourselves to receive of the Lord's table, um, being reminded of the bread and um, the fruit of the vine and how those things are a symbol of the new covenant established in Jesus Christ, Lord, we remember that his purpose was to bring us life. Lord, as we ask the question of being born again, may we, like Nicodemus, consider both the impossibility and the supernatural necessity of being born again so that we might see the kingdom of heaven. I pray that this truth would resonate to our souls and that um, at the heart of it all, we would see the majesty of the grace um, and the mission and the love of Jesus Christ for lost sinners. Lord, help us so that we might see things clearly and might exalt in the name of Jesus Christ and might glory in the Son of God for all that he has accomplished for our salvation and for eternal life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is where we're going. There's just two major movements that we'll be looking at. One is the need to be born again in verses 1 through 8, and then verses 9 through 15 how are we born again? So we begin here with the idea that we need to be born again. And can I say this about the, about the concept of being born again? You hear that concept in Christianity today, and it's almost like, I don't know, a little bit devoid of its original concept, right? Like born again, what does that mean to you? I remember um, it was about, man, it must, be, it must be almost 20 years ago that Dave, you, and I were in Japan um, with our missions team, and then we left there to kind of scout and to meet um, some various uh, um, um, churches, particularly Baptist churches, that were in Manila, in the Philippines area. And so we got a tour of Manila, we saw some crazy interesting things, met some wonderful Christians, and the interesting, one of the interesting cultural, Christian cultural things that we found out there was in Manila, they would ask you, are you Catholic, right, are you Catholic, are you Baptist, right? Or are you born again? And we're like, well, at the time, we're still an independent Bible church, so we're like, well, we're not Catholic, that's for sure. We're kind of Baptistic, but I don't think we would identify as Baptists. Are we, we're just born again, right? And then they go, oh, you born again? Uh-oh. 
right? And it's like, well, why? And then to them, the, 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 the idea of Christians is that you're either Catholic or Baptist, because there's so many Baptists in the Philippines, at least then, or you're born again. And that was the general way of designating all kinds of Christians. It included, for most people, right, um, weird cultic Christians that had the name of Jesus in their stuff, right? Mormons would be maybe sometimes categorized under the born against. But it's anyone, well, regardless of your theology, if you name the name of Jesus, you are a born again. Well, similarly, many have used that term, born again, to just kind of talk about your identification as a Christian. It's just kind of a name. I'm a born again. Are you born again? Yeah, I'm born again, right? Are we all born again? It's just kind of a designation, but the idea, the, the concept of born again is born out of this passage. And if we take it seriously, it's outrageous. It's ridiculous. Literally to be born again. I don't think Nicodemus is off. In fact, Nicodemus is right. He's recognizing the impossibility of the idea that anyone can be born, reborn, or born from above. Like these things just don't happen. See, like so many things in our Christian vernacular, things can get so old to us or so common to us that they have lost their uniqueness. But I hope to recapture the idea and the question and the necessity of being born again. We need to be born again, verses 1 through 8. And we'll begin in verses 1 and 2. Your religion is not enough. I'm saying that to you, to me, and I think the Lord is implying that in this particular context because here comes a religious leader who has, if if his religion is enough, Nicodemus is the kind of guy that should be sufficient for anything related to God and the kingdom of heaven, and yet it is not. Look at verse 1 and 2. Now there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, let me say a couple of things. One, he is identified as one of the Pharisees, but not just one of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. And by ruler, that suggests that not only is he from the party of the Pharisees, and what what it meant that you're part of the Pharisees, is that you come from a tradition of learning. You studied the scriptures for decades. You are an excellent teacher, a knowledgeable scholar. Your theology and your devotion, right? You are, you're adamant about what it took in terms of sacrifice, content, uh, commitment, all of that stuff to be a follower of God. You are an icon of religious seriousness and devotion. It's what the people would look at if they said, well, if I was to get really serious about God, what would I look like? I'd look like that man right there. He's a Pharisee. Nicodemus was that man, but he's also a ruler of the Jews, which tells us, right, that term for ruler, archon, means that he is one of the primary or the first. It suggests to us that he is one of the Sanhedrin, the 70. Sanhedrin refers to the 70, and it was the equivalent of the Jewish Supreme Court. They were the final authority on Jewish life, custom, and theology. What they said kind of ruled, right, Um, the people of Israel, and daily living. In fact, we'll go a step further. By the time we get to verse 10, and we're not there yet, Jesus will say to him, are you the teacher of Israel? And he uses the definite article. 
He doesn't say, are you a teacher of Israel as a Pharisee? He says, are you the teacher of Israel? Suggesting that Nicodemus had a particularly high reputation for teaching. Maybe the best or the greatest or the most significant teacher amongst those of the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin. Are you the teacher of Israel? So you add all that together. This is no kind of pass by night, you know, unimportant individual. This was a meeting of one of the most significant religious leaders in that day coming to Jesus and coming to him, according to verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night, right? He comes in the middle of the night, or at least when it's dark, and there's a lot of speculation of why that is, and I'm not sure, right? It could be because, um, as some scholars think, that, um, that he comes at night and it kind of builds kind of this narrative of everything that's dark and hidden, right? Things that are lost and is sinful and he doesn't even recognize his own blindness. And so that kind of, it kind of paints that color. That's a little too, like, you know what I mean? A little too cinematography, kind of weird kind of stuff to me. So I'll leave that where it is. Um, There are some that say he comes at night because um, it is logistically the most convenient. I mean, it is when the crowds are not gathered around Jesus. And him, similarly, being a Pharisee, probably studies late into the evening. And so it would be the most appropriate logistical time for him to meet up with Jesus. So maybe there's some practical to that. The other explanation is that maybe he comes at night so as to avoid the eyes of others. Here is a, the teacher of Israel, a renowned Pharisee, coming to meet with Jesus, this kind of religious upstart, potentially a prophet. And so maybe he's coming by cloak and dagger, like under the secrecy of darkness. I'm not sure. It could be a combination of some of those things. All I could say is that the scriptures record that he came at night, right? This tremendous individual in the religious life of of Israel, although he is not mentioned in any of the other Gospels. In fact, can I say this? He is only mentioned three times in Scripture, in all of them in the Gospel of John. He is mentioned here as he comes to, to ask Jesus about his identity and his purpose. He's mentioned again in chapter 7 when the Sanhedrin is talking about how they need to condemn Jesus. And he speaks up and tries to defend Jesus in the, by, by simply saying that, you know, that we should hear his testimony before we make a judgment. And then, you know, one of the other guys turns around, are you a follower? Are you a disciple of Jesus too? And then, you know, it just kind of gets shut down. And then finally, in chapter 19, he is there with Joseph of Arimathea to receive the body of Jesus and to prepare him from burial. And there it speaks of how, um, how Nicodemus shows up with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. 75 pounds is not just excessive, it's, it's kingly. And so we can, we can adduce from that, I think, rightly, that at this point, Nicodemus is not a believer, but he's, he's curious. And somewhere along the way, he's sympathetic But then by the end of it all, he recognizes and he's openly okay with others seeing him honoring Jesus as if he was the Christ, the Messiah, the King, the Son of David, and I think the Son of Man. At this point, um, Nicodemus as a Pharisee represents everything that is of the old religion, right? the idea of being born again would be a stark contrast to everything that he would say is the means by which you draw nearer to God. 
He would emphasize obedience, greater sacrifice, submission, deeper and better morality. He would emphasize the keeping of traditions and making sure that we are shaping our path. He would emphasize everything that is empowered by human will, by human intellect, and by human decision-making. And these things aren't wrong. They are certainly part of faith. But he will be shocked at what Jesus says is the means by which a man or woman can enter into the kingdom. Not by any of those religious acts. In fact, he would draw him away from such things and to understand that the only way that you come to to the kingdom of heaven um, is by being born again. So there's a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, verse 1, in the first part of verse 2. Secondly, verse 2, he's a teacher, right? Or, Or Nicodemus recognizes Jesus as a teacher that's come from God. So he comes with some sincerity and recognition of who Jesus is. This is what he says in verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, he calls him teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Not only does he recognize Jesus as a teacher, but he's a teacher from the Lord. He connects him directly to God. And he says, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The plural we know suggests that there is at least some amongst the religious leaders that are open to considering Jesus as a potential prophet. Someone that comes in the name of Yahweh. And he says God must be with him. Why? Because the miraculous things that he does evidences God. These signs evidence that God is with him. But the question that Nicodemus is here to probe is to find out who is this Jesus and what is he trying to do? This is what I find curious. And this is why I'm saying that your religion is not enough, I think kind of covers verses 1 and 2. Because here is Nicodemus coming in uh, potentially in the secrecy of night, right? Coming to ask Jesus, this teacher who must be sent from God because the things that he does only God can allow. The supernatural miracles that flow from his ministry tell us that God has sent him and he speaks things that are unusual. He needs to know more. And I said, now this guy is the pinnacle of religious devotion. Like if you you just kind of, you know, surveyed the people in Jerusalem, the devout followers of Yahweh in Jerusalem, I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone who's more knowledgeable about scripture who spends more time in scripture, right? Who spends more time in prayer, gives more generously to the poor, that does all the things that you're supposed to do and is thoughtful and careful about the keeping of the law. You'd find it difficult to find someone that was as religiously committed as he was. So that everything, right, his life is shaped to follow God. And so such an individual, why would he even need to come and seek out this teacher from where? From Nazareth, right? Why would he need to hear from this individual? Because he senses that the power of God resides with him. He senses a need that goes beyond what he has been capable of experiencing. For all of his religiousness and the completeness of his religiousness, there's still a spark of something that is missing. I find it exactly like the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 
who when Jesus asked him, have you kept some of these issues in the law? He says, I've kept these things since my youth. I don't take him as a liar. I think he really thinks he has. And we can make the argument, well, he doesn't know his own soul. He doesn't know the depths of his own heart and motives. That may be true, but at least externally, at least in terms of what an individual does, he has done everything religiously that he can do. And the same can be said, and maybe more, for Nicodemus. So then why is he seeking the teacher at night? Why does he need to, need more? Why does he need to know more? Because religion is not enough. We often say that the, the unique difference about biblical Christianity is that it's not based on works. Now, if you've shared that with, you know, your, your Mormon friends or your Catholic friends and other religious friends, a lot of them will claim that, oh, no, we're not based on works. You guys always say that, but we're not based on works. But this is what we mean by that. We mean someone like Nicodemus in sincerity, in devotion, in the fullness and commitment of everything that he can be religiously, he is that. He's the epitome of human religion and the best of human religion, right? We have no reason to think that he's hypocritical. Jesus calls many of the other religious leaders hypocrites, right? Claiming that some of them are doing the opposite of what they're supposed to be doing and they look like the stuff just on the outside. He doesn't necessarily say that to Nicodemus here. He calls Nicodemus a teacher, the teacher of Israel. And yet the teacher of Israel, the teacher of Israel, seems to be missing something. And that's why he sought out Jesus. There is something of the spark of divinity in Jesus' ministry and teaching that brings his curiosity, something lacking in all of his religiousness. It brings it to the forefront. See, it is, Christianity is by grace alone. It's the work of God alone. And it's so different from every other religion. But it, divorce it from just saying that it is just a difference of works versus grace. It is that. But the other side of that, the human face of that, is someone like Nicodemus. Sincere, excellent, right? Religious through and through. A decent individual. But not redeemed. Why? Because he's not reborn. His religion is not enough. Well, secondly, I think in the first part here, um, we could say that we must, you must, Nicodemus must be born again. Verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says this, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The emphasis here, right, by putting truly, truly, that's the amen, amen, right? It's literally amen, amen. Like it, it, it establishes this statement as being not just truthful, but of absolute necessity to listen to carefully. He's saying, listen, listen, right? Of absolute truth, absolute necessity, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, th th this might feel a little bit like a non sequitur, right? Um, here's Nicodemus, and Nic Nicodemus has come to identify and to understand Jesus and his ministry and his, uh, and his identity. He's saying, Rabbi, you're a teacher from God. I recognize that, right? Because the things that you do, only God can do. And so here's Jesus, and he has an opportunity to say, yes, I'm from God. I'm, I'm this, I'm that. Where does he go? And the first thing he says to Nicodemus for the sake of his soul is listen carefully. Unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. The primary issue, 
even for the most religious Jew, for the most religious scholar, for the individual that comes, right, with absolute sincerity, the primary issue is not how religious you can be, how carefully moral you can be, how much stuff you have sacrificed for your religion. No, the main issue is, are you born again? He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, it was assumed by every decent Jew, um, was the final destination of all Jewish people. Right? You, you have to be particularly wicked and live in perpetual sin to not enter eventually into the kingdom of heaven. So to hear that only those that are born again can enter into the kingdom of heaven would be a shock. It would be the equivalent of saying, listen, there is no good afterlife for you that awaits you, even though you expect that, unless you're born again. Now, the, the term is literally born. It means to be birthed, right? Um, it refers to physical birth. Um, we have been blessed with a number of babies being born, and we're always delighted for that. And God gives life. And so the idea of a, a human being being born, right, that's the term. And then the second part of that is born again. But the term, therefore, again, can also be translated above, and there is many that think that is a little bit of both that is mixed in here. It's not so much, it is so much that he is born again, but he's born from above as well. So there could be both of those things kind of in combination in terms of what takes place. But the key is this. The key to the kingdom of heaven is not what you do or don't do. It is whether or not you have been transformed supernaturally in your whole being. Are you born again? Are you made brand new? And the entire issue is, are you still depending on your own ability or are you depending on the spirit and the transformation that only God can give supernaturally? Calvin says this about this particular passage. He says, by the term born again, he means not the amendment of a part, but the renewal of the whole nature. Hence, it follows that there is nothing in us that is not defective. In other words, Calvin is saying, right? John Calvin is saying, why do we need to be born again? Well, it's not just, you don't, you don't get, I don't get an arm that's born again, right? You know, oh, you know, I've not been doing too well, you know, but now my arm is born again, right? That's weird. You don't get a head or a nose that's born. The whole being must be reborn. And by that idea of the whole nature being transformed, he says it follows that there must be something that is broken in our entire nature that is defective. And it must be completely renovated, completely made new. It is an outrageous statement. But it is the key question that all of us need to ask. I mean, I, you, maybe you grew up in the church. We're blessed and glad that you, are, you have been raised in the church and in the, in, the, in the things of the Lord. But at some point, has there been a, a regeneration of your soul? Has there been a faith in Jesus Christ to the point that something has changed within you? Has there been new life? Or are we just kind of going through a religious motion? And, and would you be similar if you were born into a Mormon household or a Catholic household, Right? Would you be the same thing religiously, reverently, devotionally? Or is there something that has been transformed in you by placing your faith in Christ? 
See, this is, we're talking about stuff that's supernatural and impossible, and Nicodemus recognizes that. Look at it in verse 4, the impossibility of this new life. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He literally uses the term deuteron, second, right? For the second time can a man be born. So he's understanding Jesus' words as being about being born again. Not, not, he's not hearing it as born from above, right? He's saying you need to be born again. Now some think that Nicodemus has just completely missed the point, right? That he is just saying, what are you talking about? Born again? People don't get born a second time? This is nuts, right? He's just kind of missing everything that Jesus is saying. Others will say that, that Nicodemus is sharp. He is the teacher of Israel. He knows exactly what Jesus is talking about. But in the appropriate theological kind of expression of this metaphor that Jesus has chosen, if Jesus is saying theologically and spiritually an individual needs to be born again, he is saying that is impossible, right? Because even nature tells us that a man cannot be born a second time. How can a religious man be reborn spiritually? I lean towards that second. I think Nicodemus is probably sharper than, than sometimes we give him credit for. I don't think he's just kind of bumbling and going, uh, born again? What are you talking about? How does this guy, you know, get up in his mom's belly and get born again? Right? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying, wait, what are we talking about? Is that a true thing? Is that even possible? Right? Here is the teacher of Israel, right? The icon of religious observance and devotion. And he's like, dude, I have no idea how that's possible. It's as impossible as a physical rebirth. These things don't happen. So, in that sense, he is tracking rightly with our Savior. Jesus is not saying this is something that we do to ourselves. You need to born yourself again. But he is saying that there is no one in the kingdom of heaven that isn't reborn. And that's problematic to every human being that's ever existed, including this religious man, right? So his religion is not enough. You must be born again, and you must be born of water and spirit, verses 5 through 8. So this is Jesus' expansion, his explanation of what he's trying to say must take place, right? So he begins here, by saying that one must be born of water and spirit, verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So this is, uh, uh, this is obviously an explanation of what it means to be born again. And there's a couple of uh, different uh, potential views on this. One is that we're talking about two kinds of birth, a birth of water, which might refer to physical birth. I mean, there's amniotic fluid, there's a lot of other fluids, Right, that is in, involved in you know, the formation and the birth of a child. So you have to be born physically, might be what he's saying. And then you have to be born spiritually. So born of water and then born of spirit. That might be what he's saying. That's not unreasonable and that's, that's a possibility. Right? Um, that's, not, that's not my, I, I don't lean that way, but that's not wickedness. The other possibility, right? another possibility is that he's talking about Christian baptism. And by the time that the Gospel of John is written, you realize that the church is well established and the, the regular baptism of new converts is something that everyone knows. And so maybe we're talking about Christian baptism in water and spirit baptism. 
that they are transformed by the baptism of the Holy Spirit when we come to faith. Um, that, that, I mean, theologically that's possible. The problem is it's a little out of sync in terms of, of Nicodemus. Like to the reader of the Gospel of John, we'd say, oh yeah, that's water baptism. He needs to be identified with the church and publicly identify as a believer in Christ. And he needs to be spiritually baptized. He's, he's reborn and his soul is made new. His nature is made new. But would Nicodemus understand that? Nicodemus would be like, you got to be born of water and a spirit. And he, he's probably thinking, oh, Christian baptism? No, he would, there is no Christian baptism. There's no church yet, right? He wouldn't be thinking that at all. So I, I think that one I would leave to the side and say it's probably unlikely. But the third option I think is, I think is helpful to us. He, the third option is that he's speaking of John's baptism. The baptism of John, understand the baptism of John is not Christian baptism, not the same thing. It's a baptism of repentance. See, baptism began in the intertestinal periods as a means of including Gentiles, pagans, into the Judaic faith. In other words, if I was a pagan, right, if I was a Gentile, I actually was a pagan and a Gentile. Right? I'm still a Gentile, right? But if I was an unbeliever and I wanted to become a Jew in that day, in the intertestinal period, then I would go and I would speak to the priest and they would baptize me. Why? Because the idea is that you needed to be cleansed of all the old stuff. You need to die to all the old stuff. And you can see how that becomes then, right? Eventually becomes or, is, uh, or it helps inform um, our understanding of Christian baptism. But the idea there is purely, I want to repent from my filth and be washed anew. That's the baptism of repentance of John, John's baptism. And in John chapter 1, so two chapters earlier, verse 25 to 27, they're asking John, why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? And John answers them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And you remember that John will say in the other Gospels, right, that I baptize you with water. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So I, I think there's a possibility that John's baptism Right? And regeneration. In other words, and, and don't emphasize the baptism, that when, when Nicodemus hears that you must be born of water and spirit, he will think baptism, but a baptism of repentance. And he will think that repentance is necessary as well as spiritual rebirth baptism is necessary. Right? I think that fits in line with the, the promise of Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new, new spirit I will put into you see a new heart a new spirit and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules so I think the teacher of Israel an expert in the Old Testament scriptures an excellent uh, uh, someone that's excellent and knowledgeable about about uh, um, the Jewish customs of you know infidel baptism right like guys that were pagans and and filthy right like all of that I think kind of gives us the idea of cleansing, of water being a cleansing and being a, 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 a connected with repentance and then regeneration from the spirit of God himself. All this to say that when we say, you know, um, 
are you born again, we don't, we don't just mean some phrase like, have you asked Jesus into your heart? That, listen, I love that phrase, but, um, but I think it's so amorphous, it could be kind of dangerous to, to ask, right? Have you asked Jesus into your heart? Well, I think so. Jesus, you there, right? Like, like what exactly is that supposed to mean? And, and, and when we kind of get back to the basics of what we're actually saying, I think Jesus is saying, you know, you must be reborn to enter the kingdom of heaven. And as he says that, he doubles down by saying, unless one is born of water, and I think the idea is repentance and cleansing, unless one comes recognizing their filth and asking for the washing and the purification, right, that only God can provide, and the Spirit, so it's not just you doing, but it's the Spirit of God who must transform and give you life. He can't enter the kingdom. How is one reborn? By being born of water and spirit, the Spirit, so that he is made brand new, so he's fitted for the things of the kingdom of heaven. That's, I think, what verse 6 is talking about. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Like begets like. As one scholar says, and I appreciate it, right? Flesh doesn't evolve into spirit. I think that's very true. I think the way that Paul says it in Galatians 3 is also helpful. He says, oh, foolish Galatians. He uses a term that we would later use um, just disparagingly against each other. You morons, right? That's, that's the Greek term. Who has bewitched you? Who's cast a spell on you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Jesus died for your sins. So, he says in verse 2 of Galatians 3, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? What is required in us to be... Um, citizens of the kingdom of heaven is not kind of a better series of choices. It's not a more definitively conservative moral perspective. What is required in us is a transformation of soul that we are brand new so that it cannot be credited to anything that's in our flesh, our human ability, our human nature, but it must be the spirit of God that has transformed us. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is, what? A new creation. Not a fairly repaired, used creation, right? But a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And don't miss that when Jesus says this, right? The spiritual transformation that he speaks about in verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. He emphasizes the must. It's a strong word. It speaks of necessity. And in the gospel of John, this word must is used of the necessity of the crucifixion. Later on in this chapter and in chapter 12, it's used of the necessity of the resurrection in chapter 20. It's used of, of the necessity of worship in chapter 4. I mean, must is a must. It is a strong statement, not one to be just kind of cavalier with. You have to be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. You have to be spiritually transformed. Or there is no possibility of being a citizen of heaven. I mean, if you're th sitting here right now, you're thinking, yeah, but I, I try to do good things. 
I'm pretty nice to my neighbors and um, I come to church fairly regularly. Can someone that is not transformed by the Spirit do those very things? Then I, I think that speaks to nothing that identifies you clearly with the things of the kingdom. There needs to be something in us that is different, that is changed, that is transformed because of the Spirit's supernatural work of transforming that has taken place in our souls. This is what he means when he says you must be born of the Spirit. In verse 8, he says, The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. See, he uses the analogy of the wind, and he says, you know, it goes where it wants. You don't control it. You don't see it, but you hear its sound, right? You don't know where it comes from or exactly where it ends, but... That is a power that is among us that is not that visible or clearly identifiable in terms of where it comes, where it goes, what it does. But you see its effect is his point. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You do not know how or why or what it is about them that has been so transformed, but you see it. As if wind blowing through the leaves, you could tell that that God, the Holy Spirit, has been here. He has drifted through this individual. Something transformative has taken place. See, the point is, it's not just humanly derived power, decision, or will. It is divine power, decision, and will. It is the Spirit of God who comes and transforms us. I think that's what Ezekiel 36 in the New Covenant was promising. A transformation of life. And it's not by coincidence that the Ezekiel 36 that we read earlier, right? I will take out their heart of stone. I'll give them hearts of flesh. I'll give them a new spirit. My spirit will indwell them. And all of that stuff about new life is stated in Ezekiel 36. And in Ezekiel 37 is that whole passage about the valley of dry bones. They're bones. And they're not just bones. They're bones that are dry. Like, you know, you're like KFC bones. A week later, if you didn't throw them away, they're like, there's nothing left. And then the Spirit of God comes and blows upon them, and they come to life. Death to life. That's the gospel good news. The gospel good news is that you who are dead in your trespasses and sins can be renewed, born again, because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Jesus is going to get there in a sec. So let's not go too far, right? I, I like what one commentator says, Leon Morris. If you ever run into Leon Morris's commentary on anything, you should buy it. He is so good. He says, it is the perennial heresy of the human race to think that by our own efforts, we can fit ourselves for the kingdom of God. Jesus makes it clear that it is impossible to fit oneself for the kingdom. Rather, it is necessary to be completely renewed, born anew, by the power of the Spirit. This is all Jesus is getting at. This is the shock that Nicodemus is feeling right now, right? Your religion is not enough. You must be born again, and you have to be born of repentance and regeneration of water and spirit. You need to be born again. So the logical next question would be, well, then how, how are we born again, right? And I think that's what Jesus is addressing in verses 9 to 15. <clears throat> he begins by letting Nicodemus know 
that he lacks understanding. Nicodemus responds to all of this in verse 9 by saying this. Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? And, and I think rightly, the way that we should understand this question is not so much, wait a minute, right? But how can these things be? As in, how can this thing happen? How can one be born again? Here's the teacher of Israel, right? Devotionally committed, glad to submit, following God's commands, facing a condition that he has never heard expressed before. That the absolute requirement is to be birthed. Rebirth, reborn by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. How is this question? How can these things be? And my voice keeps like getting louder and softer. I don't, I'm not sure what's going on. All right. How can these things be? Verse 9, verse 10. Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Again, he uses a definite article to say that this guy is no, he's not, you know, he's not a substitute teacher. He is the teacher of Israel. He knows his stuff. Does he not know the scriptures? Does he not know the Old Testament? The promises of new life in the spirit that will come upon us in the new age, in the new covenant. Does he not know all of these things? This is what Jesus is asking him. Are you not a teacher of Israel? Do you not understand these things? <clears throat> and then verse 11, Jesus says, listen to our testimony. He says, truly, truly, again, that same formula, amen, amen, right? Listen carefully. I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. I'm not sure who Jesus is including when he says the word we in the plural. I imagine it's the fellow disciples. He might be including all those that have spoken on behalf of God, including the prophets of old. I'm not sure. But I do know that the emphasis is on testimony, on knowing something, on seeing something, on bearing witness to something, and testifying to something. Jesus is trying to say, you won't receive my testimony, but my testimony is absolutely true. See, I, at the end of it all, Nicodemus's failure was not a failure of intellect, but a failure of willingness to believe Jesus' witness, his testimony, a failure to believe what, what seems kind of odd to him, right? But what Jesus seems to claim is from the scriptures themselves, some things that Jesus has seen, something that Jesus knows, something that he has right and authority to speak to. His point is we speak truth. But you won't hear it. And that is the problem of every human being. That the testimony of God falls on dead ears. On hearts without faith. This is God's testimony. And remember the gospel of John in chapter 1 opens up with the idea that Jesus is the word of God. He's the living word. The living testimony. The living words. The living logos. All right that evidences and speaks to and witnesses to everything that is heavenly and from the Lord. And Nicodemus, this wonderful religious and kind individual, he lacks, right? He lacks the capacity to believe. Not, not the capacity to understand intellectually, right? He can, he can go through Old Testament scriptures and try to argue his points. What he lacks is the fundamental belief in the witness of God in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, 
the divine logos, the divine word. You lack understanding and you must look to the son of man. Verse 12 to 15. Jesus says there is a heavenly hope in verse 12 and 13. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man may have eternal life. Right? So, he talks about the earthly and heavenly things. And he says, if I, if I tell you things that are from heaven, from the throne room of God, right, um, will you accept them if you can't accept the things that are spoken here on earth? I think his point is this. We have been speaking from a human condition perspective. In other words, a human being must be born again if he is to be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And if you can't receive that, because it's true, from a human perspective, from an earthly perspective, that sounds impossible, and it is. But if you can't accept that premise of the impossible, then will you accept the idea that God from heaven has sent the means for you to be born again? If you can't accept the earthly, right, the stuff that we're talking about right now, right, you have to be born again, how are you going to accept that the Son of God has come from heaven to die for your sins so that you might be cleansed and that you might be born again. We can't get to step two unless we can get past step one is kind of what he's saying. You are caught in your earthly issues and you have not the perspective of heaven. And he says this in verse 13, no one has ascended from heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. This is an interesting statement because uh, um, if you take that accept, right, me. It, it, the idea is a general exception, but it doesn't necessarily uh, contradict the previous statement. This is what I mean by that. If we take this more as a but only instead of an except, because it sounds, verse 13 almost sounds like no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended into heaven. It almost sounds like Jesus was an earthly being, ascended into heaven, and has descended, and because he's descended, he says, no one's gone into heaven except for this guy who went into heaven and is now descended from heaven. But that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying no one has ascended into heaven. You can almost hard stop that. He says, but only he who descended from heaven can speak to these heavenly things. His point is no one ascends to heaven from earth. No one uh, as a creature ascends to the throne of God. No one ascends to heaven. In fact, that was the charge against Satan in Isaiah 14, right? Verses 12 and 13. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, Lucifer, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. His pride was expressed in the statement, I will ascend to heaven. And Jesus is saying, no one ascends to heaven. All right? He says, but there is one who has descended from heaven. And this is the son of man. And that's what I think he's getting at. No one has ascended into heaven, but only he who descended from heaven, the son of man, he is the one that we should be looking to for eternal life. And then verse 14 and 15, all right? We need the Son of Man for new life. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. 
It's, uh, he is referring to Numbers 21, the story in which the fiery serpents, they're just everywhere. And you can imagine the horror. I, I don't know if you're scared of snakes. I'm not particularly scared of snakes, right? But I'm not fond of them. I don't want to lie in a bed of them. But you can imagine these fiery serpents and fire probably because when they bite you, it burns and you begin to die immediately. They're everywhere, like literally everywhere to where you can't, you can't keep them from biting you and everyone is getting bit. And as they're getting bit, right, as they're being judged because of their sinfulness, sinners who are receiving the right penalty of death, when they cry out to the Lord, the Lord provides for them a means of life. He has Moses make a bronze snake, put it on a pole, and lift it up. And it, all the Israelites that would look up and just look at that serpent lifted up, they would be healed instantly. They would be okay. I think, that, I think that's so interesting because there are probably some, because many died, they didn't look. They were like too in anguish, maybe too busy with how hard this was and what a difficult life this is and how hard it is to follow. They didn't look up. And so many died that day. But Jesus uses that to a teacher of Israel because he'll know exactly what he's talking about. And he means that the serpent was lifted up. And that's the emphasis. He was lifted up. And so similarly must the Son of Man be lifted up. Lifted up is used four times in the Gospel of John. It is used to say, when you have lifted up the Son of Man in John 8, 28, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. John 12, 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John 12, 34, so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? So clearly Jesus keeps saying that he must be lifted up, lifted up, lifted up. And I think that's both physical, that he'll be lifted up, and he speaks of how he will be crucified and hung above the people that are watching. But it also speaks in the same way that we could use lifted up that way, of exaltation. Isaiah 52, 13, the preamble to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Just as Moses lifted up the servant, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So must Jesus Christ be crucified. So must he died. And this is the only means of finding life anew, of being reborn, of having life. And, and look at the way that he expresses it in this last verse in verse 15. That whoever believes in him, who? The Son of Man, lifted up, may have eternal life. This is the first mention of eternal life in the Gospel of John. And it's not the quantity of life. You just live a super, super long time. It includes that. But it's the quality of life. It's the regeneration of life. It is a life that has come from new birth. I think Nicodemus would understand these things later. By the time we get to John 19, I said he comes with 75 pounds of uh, myrrh and aloes to anoint Jesus as if he was a king. I think he comes to faith. I think he understands what it means 
to look upon him who was lifted up and to be born again. He looks to the Son of Man and believes that in looking upon the Son of Man and believing in him and trusting his testimony, all the heavenly things that he speaks, that's how he comes to faith, eternal life, and now he becomes born again. It is not in our own experience, our passion, our commitment, our will, our intellect. It is our faith in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for us. And we celebrate that death and resurrection as we take